Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire. And we're glad to be picking up a thread that we started weaving a couple weeks ago when we shared the first half of Bishop Barron's recent talk titled, Knocking Holes in the Buffered Self, Approaches to the Question of God. Bishop Barron gave that talk at Kenrick Glennon Seminary as part of their Kenrick Lecture Series, And the first half of the talk focused on this concept of the buffered self, which gets its name from the work of Charles Taylor. The buffered self refers to someone who is cut off from the transcendent, cut off from the supernatural. They've buffered themselves from everything beyond the material world. How do we help someone escape this buffered self? And how do we engage in the hard work of soul doctoring, expanding their mind and soul to the possibility of God? That's all what we covered in the first half of this talk from a couple weeks ago. But in the second half of the talk, we look at four different approaches to the question of God, four ways to help people escape from the buffered self. We looked at the first one, the way of intelligibility, at the tail end of last time's episode. But in this episode, we're going to look at the final three ways or approaches. We have the way of contingency, the mystical way, and finally, the moral way. These are all approaches to knock a hole or create a crack in the buffered self and help the light of God to pierce inside. Before we get to the second half of the talk, though, I want to remind you one more time to pick up your copy of the new book, The Word on Fire Vatican II Collection. It's one of the most exciting volumes I think we've ever released. It's a major book that includes the four most important texts from the Second Vatican Council. Uh, Vatican II contains 16 texts, but these four stand at the pinnacle as the major and most representative texts of all of the Council's documents. But you don't just get these four texts by themselves. The Word on Fire Vatican II collection surrounds those texts with commentary from Bishop Barron and the four post-Vatican II popes. So similar in style to the Word on Fire Bible, if you liked reading the Word on Fire Bible, you'll really enjoy reading this collection as well. You can learn more and get your copy at wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. Well, sit back and enjoy the second half of Bishop Barron's lecture on knocking holes in the buffered self. Enjoy. Okay, now a second way. This first one, though, I find helpful for young people today who are very taken by the sciences. Second way, the way of contingency. A second rational approach to God, a second manuduxio, if you want, a leading by the hand, commences with the radical contingency of the world. By this technical philosophical term, I simply mean the ontologically evanescent quality of everything in our immediate experience. The objects, animals, and people that surround us, the states of affairs that obtain, the weather, the stars, the planets, all of these exist, but they don't have to exist. One indication of this, and Thomas Aquinas picks up on it, is the simple fact that all of them came into being and sooner or later will pass out of being. But an even simpler determination can be made by observing that all of these things and states of affairs could be otherwise. It's sunny now, at least it was when I was writing this paper. It's sunny now, but under different conditions, it could be cloudy. A car is racing past me on the road, but it could just as well be in the garage 
or it's quite conceivable that it wouldn't exist at all. I'm currently speaking these words. I could just as well have chosen to be doing a hundred other things. Now, what this simple thought experiment reveals is that all the matters under consideration do not contain within themselves the reason for their existence. For if they did, they could not be otherwise than they are. This is precisely why, by an altogether valid instinct, we look for the causes of such things, for the conditions for their possibility, to use Kant's language, for the sufficient explanation of why they exist as they do, to use the language of the scientists. I mean, all those reflect this fundamental metaphysical assumption. David Hume imagined that the idea of causality is illusory since the causal relationship as such cannot be empirically observed. Now, say what you want about Hume's analysis of the empirical verification of causality. He's certainly wrong to say that we have no rational warrant for accepting the metaphysical reality of causality, for such acceptance is a necessary correlate of contingency perceived as such. Now, this contingent state of affairs, contangere, right, to touch with, requires an explanation extrinsic to themselves. That's the basic meaning of a contingent state of affairs. But then we're naturally led to ask, in regard to those causes or sets of causes, whether they are self-explanatory or contingent. To return to one of our earlier examples, my speaking these words right now is contingent upon my at least relatively good health, the temperature of the room, which is poised sufficiently between extreme heat and extreme cold, so as to render my activity possible, the stability of where I'm standing, etc. But the curious mind continues to inquire, are those causes self-sufficient or contingent? Well, immediately we perceive that they're the latter. For my good health depends upon the functioning of a number of bodily systems, upon the oxygen that I'm breathing, upon my genetics, etc., the temperature of the room is determined through the heating system in the room where I'm situated, upon the structure of the building in which that room is found, upon the current state of the weather, etc. The stability of the floor depends upon the stability of the earth, etc., etc. Well, so far, so obvious. But the restless intellect still has not found a sufficient justification for the existence of the contingent state of affairs under consideration. Our analysis of causes that are themselves contingent simply postpones any definitive answer. Can this type of causal regress be infinite or indefinite? The response must be in the negative, since an infinite postponement of the matter never adequately explains how something that doesn't have to exist actually exists. Therefore, we must conclude to the existence of some reality which ultimately explains contingent being and is not itself contingent. Aquinas refers to this as uncaused cause or necessary being. And this, he affirms, is what reasonable people are referring to when they use the word God. Now, in order to understand this argument more fully, it's, as you've sensed, a kind of reworking or I'm sort of combining arguments uh, one, two, and three it might be wise to respond to one of the principal objections to this type of demonstration. Some say that the impossibility of an infinite regress of contingent causes cannot be excluded, that the chain of caused causes might simply go back indefinitely. And even Thomas Aquinas admits 
this objection would hold in regard to an historical series of causes. That is to say, causes going back in time. So I was caused by my father, he by his father, he by his, etc. In that sort of causal chain, the present causal activity of each member is not here and now dependent upon the causal influence of the immediately antecedent cause. Though my coming into being was dependent upon my father, I can act and influence other things even though he's no longer alive. And thus, one could not rule out an infinite regress in that context. It's instructive that typically when this sort of proof is attacked, the critic is almost always assuming a causal series, to use the technical terms, subordinated per oxidans and not per se. What Thomas Aquinas denies is precisely that latter type of infinite causal series, in which each element is here and now dependent upon the influence of the cause immediately preceding it. In that kind of causal chain, the suppression of the first instance would indeed entail the suppression of all subsequent causality. Now, if the first kind of proof we looked at gives us a great intelligence that stands behind the intelligibility of the world, this one gives us something even more fundamental. Namely, a great source of being and actualization that stands behind the passing and ephemeral world of our experience. The preface to one of the Eucharistic prayers expresses the implications of this notion as follows. In you, O God, we live and move and have our being. And this last quotation reflects, to be sure, one of the most basic intuitions of the biblical authors, namely that God is the creator of all things. This idea is spoken in supreme poetry in both the book of Genesis and the middle chapters of Isaiah is perfectly correlate to the notion of God as the non-contingent ground of contingent existence. Something I found in my uh, pastoral evangelical work is to help people identify what it feels like to be contingent. So we've talked about it objectively and abstractly, but to feel my own contingency, my own non-self-explanatory quality. If start with that, just as you might start with the, the hunger for God, start with the evanescence of my own being, and then follow this kind of line of thought. Okay, a third path. I'm calling it the mystical way. A third path is more mystical and intuitive, less rationalistic. Though the arguments for God's existence offered by Aquinas are perhaps the best known, few realize that Thomas's insistence that we can and should argue for God on the basis of what the senses deliver to us was at that time relatively egregious. For most of the theological tradition that preceded and indeed surrounded him, the affirmation of the self-evidence of God's existence was far more common. Augustine is typical here. The great North African bishop maintained that God is not so much a true thing that the mind discovers, not a good ideal that the will seeks. Instead, God is the light of truth itself, by which the search for any particular truth is undertaken. The light of goodness itself which illumines the quest for any particular good or state of righteousness. This is why Augustine refers to God as the prius of all thought and action. The great undergirding condition for the possibility of these two fundamental moves of the soul. 
Bernard Lonergan, though in a vein more Thomistic than Augustinian, caught this when he spoke of the hunger that drives the questing mind. The mind, he says, is empty, but not in the manner of a box, but rather in the manner of a stomach, meaning it knows what it seeks. Aquinas himself refers to the lumen, to the light of the agent intellect, designating the always-already-present energy that animates the intellect in its work of seeking the truth. In a word, they're all recognizing. There's some primordial sense of truth in its unconditioned form that drives the quest for particular truth. Apposite here is the Hindu adage that the atheist is like the man riding into town on the back of an ox, saying, I'm seeking an ox. Anyone sincerely looking for the truth on this reading has already been found by truth in its unconditioned form, namely by God. Paul Tillich, the Protestant theologian, operating here within a very Augustinian framework, speaks of revelation as the breakthrough of the unconditioned. Our ordinary experience is exclusively of conditioned things. Indeed, the previous argument is predicated upon that fact. But in and through the conditioned beings of the world, and through the manner in which we know those things, one can sense what Tillich calls being itself, or truth itself. One of the marks of the unconditioned is that it cannot be sequestered simply on one side or the other of the subject-object divide. It's both in here and out there. It's neither in here nor out there. It lies beyond the split between subjectivity and objectivity. Listen here to the mystics, by the way, who echo this more philosophical language. And this is why those who describe the experience of receiving a breakthrough of the unconditioned will sometimes use language more subjective in tone, other times more more objective. Now, according to a number of contemporary theologians and philosophers of religion, the precipitating cause of this breakthrough are frequently limit experiences, times when the finitude of the world and one's own finitude are, are intensely felt. Thus, when we confront our own sin, our own physical weakness, our own mortality, our own practical incapacity, or when we feel the unresolvable tension between two competing ontological values, we come to a kind of edge beyond which we can sense a darkness both frightening and alluring. There's Rudolf Otto. As Hegel put it, to know a limit as a limit is already to be beyond the limit. That's what the experience of the unconditioned is like. Now, in light of this reflection on the nature of the unconditioned, I think we can more properly understand one of the most famous and controversial arguments for God's existence, namely the so-called ontological argument formulated by Anselm. Um, my thesis director in Paris years ago was a wonderful Jesuit named Michel Corbin. And one day in class he said, uh, uh, l'argument ontologique qui n'est ni argument ni ontologique. <laughs> the ontological argument, neither ontological nor an argument. And he's, he's right about that. It was Kant gave it the term ontological argument. Um, but let me try to just shed some light from this perspective. The famous demonstration, as any Philosophy 101 student knows, is simple enough to lay out schematically. Step one, God is defined as that than which nothing greater can be thought. 
Step two, it's greater to exist both inside and outside the mind than in the mind alone. Conclusion, God exists. Now, detractors of the argument from Thomas Aquinas to Immanuel Kant have tended to see it as a kind of intellectual ledger domain, pulling the extra-mental out of the intramental. However, might we appreciate it as a sort of showing forth of the implications of an experience of the unconditioned. In the rarely read section of Anselm's Proslogion, which immediately precedes his articulation of the so-called ontological argument, the saint tells us that he had been assiduously searching for a clinching proof of God's existence, and that only when he let go of this quest did the argument come to him as a kind of gift. And it came, he says, in the form of a name, id quomaius cogitari nequit, in his Latin, that than which nothing greater can be thought. What's immediately clear once you have that name, once that comes to you as a gift, what's clear is the name cannot correspond to any being in the world, indeed to no possible being among beings. For to such a reality, think even of the highest, greatest being in the world, something more could always be added. The conventional supreme being plus the world would be greater than the conventional supreme being alone. Nor, id quomaius cogitari nequit, that in which nothing greater can be thought, nor could that simply correspond to an idea in St. Anselm's mind or in your mind. For that idea plus any type of objectivity would be greater than that idea alone. Hence, what was given to Anselm through the mystical experience of being given this name was the unconditioned, was the breakthrough of the unconditioned. What the proof makes explicit I'm arguing, is what was already implicit in the name, that the unconditioned is neither in the mind alone nor in the world alone. It's perfection tantamount to a transcendence of those categories. Anselm was not moving, as his critics consistently maintain, from the intramental to the extramental. Rather, he was witnessing to the existence of a reality that can be sequestered in neither of those categories. As I mentioned earlier, the view that God's existence is self-evident was the dominant one prior to Thomas Aquinas. Perhaps we might even see a link between this venerable tradition and the point of view coming forth from John Calvin and enduring to the present day in Calvinist philosophical circles that the knowledge of God's existence is, in their language, properly basic. That's to say, known with the same kind of immediacy and indubitability as our knowledge of our own existence and that of the physical world. Okay, fourth and final path. I'm calling it the moral way. In his apologetic writings and his more formal treatises on a religious epistemology, John Henry Newman consistently took as his point of departure the experience of the conscience. There are any number of psychological powers that enable us to evaluate dimensions of the world, for example, we have an aesthetic sensibility, an ability to read persons and their motives. We also have the capacity to evaluate the goodness or evil of our moral acts. Yet, Newman argues, 
there's a qualitative difference between this last power and its analogs. For only in the case of moral evaluation do we feel ourselves in the presence of someone whom we've either pleased or offended. If we make an erroneous aesthetic judgment, we might feel ignorant or foolish, but we don't, strictly speaking, feel ashamed. And this is precisely why we speak only in the case of moral evaluation of the voice of our conscience. Someone, we are convinced, is praising us or blaming us. The German phenomenologist Max Scheler, very influential, of course, upon Karl Wojtyla, makes much the same point in his analysis of the act of repentance. I'm quoting now from Scheler. Repentance begins with an indictment. But before whom do we indict ourselves? Is it not then in the nature of an indictment that there should be a person who receives it and before whom the charge is laid? Repentance is furthermore an inward confession of our guilt. But to whom do we then confess? Repentance ends with a clear consciousness of the removal of guilt. But who has taken the guilt from us? Close quote. That's Shaler. What he's noticing is that the feeling of real shame goes beyond a sense of responsibility toward another human being whom we've offended. It places us painfully, to be sure, in the presence of the source of moral obligation. And the feeling of being truly forgiven, in a similar way, passes beyond whatever psychological satisfaction we might derive from receiving the benediction of another human being whom we have hurt, and it introduces us into the presence of a grace coming from a transcendent place. Shaler's phenomenological colleague, Dietrich von Hildebrand, drew a distinction between what he calls the merely subjectively satisfying and the objectively valuable. The first is something that gives pleasure to the ego, that therefore takes its bearing entirely from the side of subjectivity. But this is to be sharply contrasted with a value that confronts the ego and demands a response, demands an acknowledgement. These values can appear in the aesthetic order. Think Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, Van Gogh's Starry Night, Dante's Commedia. In the presence of such values, it would be comically inadequate to say, oh, you know, I, I just don't care for it. Their objective goodness is so overwhelming that the only proper response is surrender and appreciation. But these objective values also appear on the moral plane. Acts of kindness. Forgiveness, self-sacrifice, self-forgetting love, think of a, a Maximilian Kolbe, are not so much subject, subjectively satisfying, they might be anything but. Rather, they stand forth in their objective quality and demand what Hildebrand calls a value response. Now, these moral goods, which can be arranged and assessed hierarchically, are seen as ultimately reflective of distinctively spiritual values, goods having to do with the summum bonum, the highest value, which is God. We might link this to an earlier path by drawing attention to the properly unconditioned nature of real moral demand. 
We are summoned, of course, to perform particular morally good acts, but underneath this demand is the pervasive and mysterious demand to be a good person, to do good and avoid evil, to put it more explicitly religious language, to follow the law of God. This is not a demand that can be put aside or compromised. Rather, it presses upon us with unconditioned power. Another manner of showing the connection between objective moral values and the summum bonum is to attend to Aquinas' often misunderstood fourth argument for God's existence in the first summa. Second summa, rather. Aquinas commences with the gradations that we notice in things regarding their goodness, truth, nobility, and the like. In order to avoid the most common misperception, we must remark he's not referring to gradations at any and every level of being, dirtier, cleaner, higher, lower, etc., but rather gradations in regard to the transcendental properties of being as such. Since these appertain precisely to being, they are by nature unlimited, unconditioned in scope. Hence, when we organize hierarchies of objective, moral, aesthetic, and epistemic values, we are indeed doing so in relation to some highest value. So Aquinas concludes, there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something that is uttermost in being. This last observation, of course, giving away the game. Therefore, once we break out of the buffered self and its attendant moral subjectivism, and we recognize the world of objective moral value, what Hildebrand calls the important in itself, what Newman would say is the object of, of the conscience, we are ineluctably led to a vision of God. And now, everybody, just a few words by way of conclusion. Therefore, the intelligibility of the world, the contingency of ordinary states of affairs, immediate mystical experience, and the press of moral obligation all point in the direction of God. Is any one of these approaches airtight, beyond question, utterly convincing? Perhaps not. But we should keep Newman's epistemology here in mind. Rarely, if ever, do we assent to a proposition on the basis of a single clinching argument. Typically, we do so under the influence of a conjuries of arguments, intuitions, and experiences, all of which tend along the same trajectory. And this is eminently true of our assent to the proposition that God exists. I might make reference here to a final argument, if you want, namely that from the consensus gentium. That's to say the general agreement of people across time and space that God exists. As I mentioned above, our contemporary Western culture is anomalous in the extreme in the measure that it's the first ever widely to entertain God's non-existence as a lively option. The arguments that I've sketched this evening might be seen as the rational articulations of fundamental intuitions that ordinary people have had from time immemorial. They represent the bringing into explicit consciousness of powerful and consistent perceptions about ultimate reality that have perdured and continue to perdure in the human heart. Accordingly, they are ways out of the cave, methods for knocking holes in the buffered self. 
Thanks everybody for listening tonight. Well, we hope you enjoyed that excellent talk from Bishop Barron on knocking holes in the buffered self approaches to the question of God. Bishop Barron will be back with us next week for another great discussion episode. But while you're waiting for that, I encourage you to go pick up your copy of the brand new Word on Fire Vatican II collection. It's a gorgeous book. It contains four of the major documents from the Second Vatican Council with commentary from Bishop Barron and St. Paul VI, St. John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. It helps you not only to understand what the Council Fathers were saying, but how these teachings are meant to be implemented today. So we encourage you, visit the website wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. Pick up your copy of this beautiful new book. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.